right. Welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds. And welcome to another episode. Before I jump into today's episode, let me just say RIP AKA. AKA is a South African rapper. And I think like an hour ago now, two hours ago, it was confirmed that he was shot dead in South Africa. Uh, Apparently it was some type of drive-by shooting and he was supposed to be celebrating his birthday. If you're into like African hip-hop or African music, you definitely know AKA. Mm -hmm. He had that controversy with Burn the Boy a few years ago, but very mindless. I wonder if the youths of Africa are starting to emulate some things globally based on like hip-hop influence and things like that. But, you know, the violence in South Africa has always been a concern, but watching like a major figure die like this is pretty, pretty tragic. So peace and love to his family and and hopefully, you know, the police can find the perpetrator. So RIP to him. But today on the podcast, we have media entrepreneur founder and editor-in-chief of TAN TV, Adedayo Fashion. How are you doing? Oh, wow. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Yeah. I mean, you're a media entrepreneur, so I'm sure you do these things all the time. <laughs> so thank you for gracing our little platform. You know, we want to be like TAN TV when we grow up, you know, that type <laughs> of thing. So. <laughs> but how's your week been so far? Uh, so so far, so good. First of all, such a pity to hear about that. I know a bit about AKA just from some reality show and all that stuff. So that's pretty sad news right there. Hmm. Yeah, very, very sad news. But on to a little bit of better news. Happy birthday. I understand you celebrated your birthday like a week ago. Yes, I did. <laughs> Thank you. So do we have leftover jollof? What are you sending to us over here? Listen, listen, all the jollof (laughs) from everywhere. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, that's one of the things I miss about living in D.C. I had a great time, but my birthday was on February 3rd. So it's really, really just nice to reflect. It was a time to reflect for me. So pretty good. Okay, February 3rd. So, you know, that's exactly a week ago. We're recording this on the 10th. How does it feel to have a birthday so close to Valentine? Like if you're in a relationship, does your significant other have to celebrate your birthday and celebrate Valentine? Well, how does it work exactly? That's a good question. No, it's different. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be listening to this. So make sure you say the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> birthday is special, special. I need all the love and attention on my birthday. And then Valentine's Day, we, we share the love. So it's mutual. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I can see that. I can see that. But yeah, one of the things that I miss about living in DC is actually like the food. Like I moved from DC to Denver a few years ago and... Oh, wow. I actually thought you were local. You're not. You left us. I was. I used to be. Yeah. So I went to school in DC. I went to AU, but I lived in Georgetown for two years. And then when I graduated, I moved out here to Denver. And Denver mm. doesn't just have the number of African restaurants or African stores or African activities that obviously mm-hmm. Chocolate City, the DMV has, but we're still trying to make it work, you know? So, so far, so good. Wow. So you haven't really discovered any sort of African restaurant in Denver? We have, but it's not a lot. So we have like, uh, I think they used to have like two or three, but a couple closed down like during the pandemic. So the major one now is kind of like a Ghanaian restaurant somewhere in Lakewood. And then there's oh. an African food truck 
somewhere mm-hmm. in Aurora. So, you know, that's not like a restaurant. That's like a food truck. So just go there, pick up food and like go home type thing. But it's mm-hmm. not like the variety that you have in like the D.C. or Maryland area, obviously. Do you have an idea of the percentage of Africans? Like, Oh, very little, I would say. Oh, okay. Denver, I think, is like 70% white. Let's start there. <laughs> yeah. And then like maybe 10% Hispanic, I think. Then Black people as a whole are probably like 9%. And that includes like African-Americans. So the Africans in there are probably like 3 or 4%. And Africans here in Colorado are mostly like East Africans. So we have like Ethiopians, Somalis, um, mm. Eritreans, that type of thing. West Africans. Not so, not so. <laughs> not a lot. Maybe like less than three thousand people, if I'm guessing. I don't know, something That's like that. So, wow. But yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. Happy yes. birthday once again. Like, I'm interested. Yeah. First things first. Like, I'd love to talk to you about kind of like how you birthed the idea of Tanti. I know you've been in media all your life, but touching on your personal story a little bit. Like, who is Adidai? Or like, you know. How did you get to like come to the U.S.? Like, give us a bit of background about your immigrant story. Ah, that's a lovely, lovely, lovely question. I always enjoy sharing that story. You know, everyone at some point has the American dream, so to say. Thankful that America for a while now, you know, has always been that place where, you know, people just desire because of the opportunities and the space to start from nothing and get somewhere. You know, it's like what they say is like only in America that you would be nobody yesterday and tomorrow you can be somebody, right? Right. You know, I came to the U.S. at age of 15 to college, actually. So I was the youngest student ever in my alma mater, Cameron University in Lawton, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, 15 years old. Wow. Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so it was interesting because when I got there, luckily my mom came with me. My parents live in Nigeria. I was the first person in my family to come to the States. My parents grew up in Britain, but they basically were stationed in Nigeria, you know. So in terms of leaving Nigeria to America, I was the first person in my family. And, you know, when I got here, it was interesting because at the school they thought, that the age of my admissions and everything was like a typo. So they didn't bother about that, thankfully, until I got here and the international officer, I remember her name, Marcella, she was just like, so what's your real age? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And I'm like, what do you mean what's my real age? 15. And she was like, no, 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 it can't be. We thought it was a typo, blah, blah, blah. And so that sparked a whole controversy because I was really young and they had never seen anyone that young come to school, you know. So they made my mom sign her life away, basically, because, of course, she wasn't going to stay on campus with me. (laughs) She had to go back to Nigeria. Right. They were like, yeah, the average age here is 25. So they basically gave me a chaperone in college till I was like 18, you know, and all that good stuff. So I finished college at 19. Wow. And uh, it's been interesting just navigating my whole immigrant journey, I would say. A few of my other siblings later came to join. So it's not like I've been alone. So that's great. And they're well established now over here and all that good stuff. But in terms of being in America, I think one thing I would say is I never saw myself as Black, right? Because you come from Nigeria, everyone is Black. You know, you're not necessarily faced with Oh, you never saw yourself as black before you came here. Yeah, I never saw myself as black. I was just, 
Got it. A child, then I was just a human. I was just a girl. Got it. Then you're an American, then you start, oh, you enter the American workforce. Oklahoma, of all places. Yeah, exactly. The workforce, because I used to be a pre-med student, <laughs> funny enough, you know, coming here, the idea was I was going to be a doctor at 21. That's very Nigerian of you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, I'm going to be a doctor at 21. I, you know, I had my whole life figured out, like, 15, finish college, enter med school, boom, 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 and all that. So while in college, you know, I kind of started getting different advice from friends and everyone about the major to study and so on. And so at some point I did what they call medical laboratory science or clinical laboratory science. I think they've changed the name now, but that's basically when you work in the hospital laboratory and you're dealing with like specimens, you know, urine and everything else, blood and all that stuff. So for one year while in college, I did that because I was going to find a cure to cancer or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I did that for one year in Oklahoma. And that was really when I, I had my first you know, experience of racism in the space that I was young. I was like 17 or 18, you know, really young and navigating the space and just noticed the sort of talk down. And it was just terrible. I had a terrible experience there in Oklahoma, working in the medical field. So I started getting awakened to something is off, something is happening. I just didn't know what, something is off, you know? Then I went back to my advisor and kind of explained like, like, I can't, I don't think I can complete this course. This is too hard and everything. So I changed my major to psychology. And at that point, my parents were done with me. They were like, if you don't graduate this semester, we're going to disown you. <laughs> because, you know, mind you, they're changing Naira to dollar, right? right? And at this point, I changed majors from pre-med and everything else. And, you know, I just did the course my last semester, ended up with like a degree in chemistry and psychology pretty much. And, you know, enter the workforce and um, it's still very much a social science student. Did you stay in Oklahoma post-graduation? I did. I stayed for a few years in Oklahoma, just working. And wh where were you in Oklahoma? Were you in Oklahoma City? Where were you exactly? I was in a small town in Oklahoma. Interestingly, I was in a town called Lawton, Oklahoma. Lawton. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I'm such a nerd because I remember when I was trying to pick my school, a lot of my friends were going to Tennessee or going to New York. And for some reason, I was like, Oklahoma will be the place where I can really focus on what I'm going to America to do. That was my thinking. I was like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to focus. I'm going to achieve. And then I would leave Oklahoma and go to the big city. And by then I have my education. That was really my thinking in choosing Oklahoma. But I think I was wrong because going there, it was so boring. <laughs> and that's really where, again, I developed writing and just a lot of the introspective things that I've been doing in terms of like social impact and being a change maker, quote and unquote. It was really in the space of being by myself that I got to develop a lot of the things that I know, like just observing things and knowing like, okay, this is what's happening and how can I make an impact? So what can I do to make a difference? You know? So really I would say my immigrant journey has been one of a kind and it's led to the point where I've come to discover the concept of being black in America, mm. I would say. And then we can talk about everything else from there. Right. It's really been a discovery about what it means to be Black in America, which, of course, I didn't know about 
prior to coming to America. No pun intended. <laughs> nah, nah, right, right, right. And it's pretty interesting coming from someone that like it's pretty interesting. Exactly. <laughs> It's pretty interesting you said that because my experience was kind of like the opposite, right? So I'd been admitted to the University of Buffalo. I'd been admitted to a bunch of universities, right? All these universities are like, okay, which one is the cheapest? Which one is going to give me the best scholarship? Mm. I was like, okay, Buffalo seems to be, I was like, okay, between not a lot of scholarship, but cheap enough that, okay, maybe I can make that work. And then paid the deposit and I went to Buffalo. I was like, hell no. (laughs) I'm not staying here. I'm going to DC. The way I was looking at it, I was looking at it at opportunities, right? Like, where am I going to do an internship? There's nothing here, right? And I was like, no, let me go to DC mm. and see how that'll work out. But you saying, like, you experienced, like, realizing that you were Black, as much as we can get into specific, what was that first incident that made you realize that, oh, maybe someone of a different race does not like me? Can you remember that specific incident? Okay, there were a couple of incidents, but something unique happened when I was even in college where I went to, I forget which lecture it was, but excuse myself to go to the restroom. Then I go to the restroom and then there's a white girl who walked up to me. She was in my class and then she walked up to me in the restroom and said, you know, you're different from them. And I'm like, What do you mean I'm different from them? And then it was like, you know, you have an accent that is really nice compared to the quote unquote ghetto Americans. And I'm like, yo, (laughs) it wasn't even necessarily that like racist, if you want to put it that way, but it opened my eyes to see that "Hmm, this is interesting. Right. So that was one part of it that just kind of I found it weird that she would say that, you know, about my accent and being exotic and compared to the other Black Americans in the class, you know? And then I started working. The whole time of working in the hospital, every day was a challenge because I was only, was myself and one other Caribbean student that were the only Blacks. This is like a very limited program where they accepted like less than 10 students for the program, for the lab science program. And I was one of the 10, I think we're we're actually like seven in the class. So it was like two black girls, the the rest white. And I just noticed the struggles that we faced where we would do an exam. And for us, the cutoff mark for A was like 98. And for them, it was like 90. And I just kind of noticed like, wait, (laughs) we would compare grades and my scoring was like way more stricter than the other white folks. And I just didn't get it. And I'm like, come on, you're telling me to make an A, I have to score 98%. Meanwhile, they scored 90 and they still got an A. So it was just like things like that. I was like, okay, how do you even fight this? And then I entered into the American workforce. I was working in mental health because you know, I ended up with a psychology and chemistry degree, but I decided to go the social science route. And while working, it was mostly Black Americans in the clinic. It was an outpatient counseling center. And the African-Americans, some of them were cool, but some had some issues, right? It was almost like this unspoken rivalry back then. Now it's different. But back then it was like, mm, even though we're both black, but then there's still a certain unspoken thing, like, I don't like you. Right. So it was in different categories. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was just like racist attacks or racial slurs, 
or anything like that. This was just more very subtle ways of experience that, okay, in this space, I'm this. Between the Black Americans, I'm not <laughs> necessarily right. yeah, go-to person. You know, for white Americans, they liked me, but they didn't like the Black Americans, you know, but they liked my accent. So it's just noticing the different undertones in, in different spaces. And where do you feel most accepted when you're in the society? Mm. So that was really my experience that started like making me feel more conscious and more self-aware, so to say. Got it. I mean, it's very interesting you say that, you know, for the life of me, as long as I've lived in America, I've always asked myself that question that how do we, at the back of my mind, I've always wanted to do a project called The Bridge like bridging that divide between Africans and African-Americans. Like I just told you about Colorado having like a 9% or something like that Black population. And we're already in a minority together. Then mm-hmm. in between that 9%, we're dividing each other. Oh, 3% African, 3% African-American, 3%. Like, <laughs> it makes no sense. Like, you know, we're all... And I know there are some you know, historical traumas from both sides, like from both sides, you know, it's like, oh, our ancestors sold out some of their ancestors and it wasn't always like that, but it did happen. Mm-hmm. There are great things from Africans to Americans and also African-Americans to Africans, but I'm like, how do we unite and really like <laughs> move forward as a race? I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Because I've tried my best to organize like one or two virtual events, bringing both groups together done little things here and there, try to write Mm. about it, try to talk about it. But I just feel like it's just so much work. Like, how do you feel like we can bridge that gap? No, that's a great question. And something you would have noticed is that since 2019, you know, with the year of the return, a lot of Black Americans went visiting Ghana, especially for this 400, you know, year of return celebration and all that good stuff. So Since 2019, I feel like there's been a conscious shift, even with the Black Americans saying we're one, you know, there's no need for divide. And a lot of them are also discovering their ancestry. So if you meet a Black American today compared to maybe 10 years ago, they would say, you know, I'm I'm 50% Nigerian or 45% Ghanaian. And they're so proud of it, right? One thing I realized, a lot of it also has to do with education. I think we Africans from the continent, when we immigrate here or immigrate here, whichever, the fact is we are not taught the history. We don't know the history of African-Americans, slavery, right, of racism. We don't know that history when we come here. We come here so ambitious. We come here so blind. <laughs> we come here thinking, listen, I would make it, you know how they say like, Jano, they carry last, like, I right. would make it. No, come here, come Cambridge. Right. Even if you put me in Russia, I don't care about the history. <laughs> Anywhere you put an African, they will tell you they will make it, you know. We hustle, we fight, but a lot of the things we're able to accomplish as Africans when we come here as immigrants, we will not be able to achieve 1% of it if the African-Americans did not fight and they're still fighting today for for rights, for us to have rights. Facts. Even though Black storytelling, for instance, I always say is not monolithic, we all share something in common, right? We all share that African ancestry or being African descent in one way, and you all share that race. So the lack of education that we Africans have as immigrants is a big problem. And so I just particularly have, just like you, a personal mission to put into the educational system, you know, on the continent, across the countries, African-American history. Mm. It needs to be taught. 
it needs to be taught. Because African history is taught here, but African-American history is not taught. Yeah. But even we don't even know most of our history in terms of African history. True. We're not even, between ourselves, there's so much stress in terms of even traveling between countries to learn of each other's culture and similarities, unless you share borders like me. Even Nigerians probably haven't even been to Cameroon, you know? So <laughs> it's like, there's just this divide, right? And so even between ourselves, there's this need for that education. But I think as a whole, that history is something that one needs to be aware of, you know? So in terms of talking about building that bridge, it's already happening. Ghana has taken the leadership in this and saying, you know, we want African-Americans to come back home. So now there's something called Beyond the Return. And a lot of education is happening. For instance, the recent documentary, one on Netflix by the Obama production company called Descendants. I don't know if you've seen that yet on Netflix. No, not yet. It's a great documentary. It's a must watch because that documentary basically goes back. It sheds light on a particular town within the U.S. that used to be called Africa Town. And that was then basically the documentary surrounds the last ship, the illegal ship that arrived in that town where it brought the last set of slaves and they basically lied that that ship ever existed or whatever, you know? And so the story is quite deep and very interesting, but it sheds light on the real, like Africans, how they were brought here. And then there's another documentary that just came out on Hulu called 16, the 1619. I've heard about that one. Yeah. And so I haven't watched that yet, but I've seen preview and I plan to watch it. I even plan to sort of do some interviews, you know, in the near future, we already reached out to see if we could secure some interviews, you know, about that documentary. But I just appreciate the fact that we're in a time where, again, since maybe Judge Floyd, you know, a lot of people are more awake and I'm just hoping it's not a trend. I'm hoping it's here to stay. Right. There's cross communication, right? Where we can learn about each other's history and so that you could do better in the present and future. Yeah, I agree. Education is very, very important, you know, in cross education between both groups. Like that's the bedrock of kind of like understanding like the next person. If you're not educated about, you know, history and the way things were done, it's like everyone's just Mm -hmm. oblivious to the fact. But and you did make a solid point there that, you know, all the diversity, all the benefits of that, you know, this diversity movement and, you know, affirmative action are being enjoyed by Africans, even though we're not the ones that fought for it. Right. So we just need to be sensitive to some of these things. Right. But circling back to you, like you, you mentioned that, hey, you know, when you're in Oklahoma, when you're in Lutton, like, you know, you started writing because, you know, it was a very fun town and everything. And so you were writing. <laughs> <laughs> you were writing all day and everything. And although you graduated with psychology, like you started working like in the health sector, where did this fire? Because you've worked for some amazing organizations, right? You've worked alongside what, like Forbes, Huffington Post, the UN, the White House, all these things. Like, how exactly? Did that whole thing start? It's one thing to do something for a hobby, mm. but how did it culminate into like, hey, let me make this thing a thing, build it into a brand and start pushing out content on the media side? 
Again, back to what I first said in the beginning about America being a land of opportunities and that someone who you can be nobody yesterday and tomorrow you could be somebody. Like even a lot of these actors today, when you hear their stories, they'll tell you, oh, I was sleeping in my car. And then the next minute they're in the red carpet because they did one movie. That's America for you. So I look back and I'm like, okay, it wasn't like you had one auntie or uncle in one position. <laughs> it's like, here, go here, go there. So it's really been just following passion and pursuing impact. I think all my work speaks for itself in that I've just always pursued just making an impact one way or the other. So like HuffPost happened because, you know, living mental health, Failed. It was almost like a quest to discover the meaning of life. Again, I told you I sat in a lot of introspection being in Oklahoma. And, and so I pitched to Ariana Huffington where she connected me with an editor. Ah, wait, you just cold emailed Ariana? Cold emailed. And, uh, <laughs> and she responded. I call her my media mama because she really opened the door. And, and that's the, again, the beautiful thing about, you know, America is you don't need to have one auntie or uncle somewhere. You can make it if you... If You're competent, right? It's a system and it has its due processes. And so that was really the start of that. I just continue to push. I think that if there's anything about my story or my path is really about grit, you know, and it's like... I don't know how you would define grit, but it's almost like being relentless. It's like, if one door closes, I'm going to push the other. I'm going to keep pushing, right? And I'm still in that journey, on that journey, right, to that main place. But I do look at the journey and so far, and a lot of it has just been being self-aware, being environment-aware, and pursuing a main goal, you know, that passion that it's a process. Anybody that says there's overnight success, the overnight success is like decades in the making. Then one day it could look like overnight success. Right. It doesn't start as overnight success. So in terms of that, I think from HuffPost to Forbes, being a contributor at Forbes, even the White House opportunities has always just been putting one foot in front of the other, you know? What did you do in the White House exactly? Yeah. So I was just going to talk about that. One of the opportunities I had with the White House was on the, the Obama administration. How do I even, so before the pitch came, let's see how this, to be honest, I know, I'm trying to figure out how one of the big stories I did happen, but I was still a contributor for Forbes, Forbes under 30. And there was the opportunity, the Obamas were like about leaving the White House. There was an opportunity to interview Michelle Obama's chief of staff, Tina Shen. And I think I got a call, if I remember clearly, I got a call from an unknown number, which happened to be the White House or something, and was like, if you would want to come to interview Tina Shen. And so I was like, sure, <laughs> you know, it just sort of happened. So now I still can't even explain it. But but yeah, so I emailed my editors at Forbes and I was like, you know, there's this story and if you will consider it and they were like, yeah, go ahead and do what you got to do and send it to us. You know, I get to the White House and there are tons of journalists at the gate and somebody just asked my name and everything. I'm like, oh, you come in and basically <laughs> had the opportunity to be in, in a different space than where we normally stay, which is like the press room of the White House. But this time we went inside the office of the chief of staff, which is such a rare entrance. It was myself and one other journalist from Refinery29 that did this interview where we interviewed 
interviewed her about Michelle Obama's Let Girls Learn Education thing that she was doing that while she was in office, you know, the program or initiative, so to say, right? And so that was one big interview that I did. And that access was just everything. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I think it was a history. If I remember, I don't want to get it wrong, but it was such a peculiar experience. And ever since then, you know, there's just been different opportunities, especially when you're in media. And the fact that I run a startup as well has opened doors in tremendous ways because running a startup gives you higher leverage than if you were working in a traditional setting, because most times it would probably be senior journalists or chief correspondent that would get some of those opportunities. But we sort of get the same memo, like I'm getting the same feed. Uh, they democratize those opportunities. Yeah, exactly. So Got it. when there's opportunity for AP, CNN, Fox or whatever, we also have those opportunities. The only difference is the money. So there's a time where there was an opportunity to be on Air Force One. They emailed for a pool of journalists that will go there to cover. And I responded and tried to, you know, go through the process until it came down to putting my credit card. And I'm like, oh, hell no, this is not CNN. Oh, wait. So you pay to be on like platforms like that? I thought it was the other way around. I thought Fox pays contributors. No, no, no. You pay to be on Air Force One. So this was going to be when you fly with the president. Right. Oh, Air Force One. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, Air Force One is, yeah. So there's a whole thing behind it. Each company, each media company pays to have a seat on the Air Force One. Ah, Air Force One is using Expedia to sell seats, huh? So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a whole thing. Of course, there's also background checks. How much does one of those seats cost, just out of curiosity? You know, I didn't even get to find out because all they wanted was my credit card on file and I was going to be able to have myself or any of my journalists on... Your credit card on file for what? For what amount? 50000 1000 <laughs> <laughs> You don't know? I didn't know. I didn't even bother asking. Oh, I didn't man. get that far. But then, you know, that's the great thing about big companies like, you know, the established media entities. Right. Is, you know, media is the fourth estate, especially in America. It's, they try to respect that, which was why when Trump was in office was a big issue, right? Because it's like, what's going on? This is not the America we know, but generally America is known to respect, you know, the voices of the media, right? And so, yeah, it was interesting because they do democratize the space enough. Right. And so for me, what, what we're building at TAN TV is that eventually we would have a seat on Air Force One, we'll become a credible, we're already credible, but we'll become a well-known media outlet where we can do more news and tell stories that affect us from, you know, like when you think about who we are, like we're Africans here, we're first generation, you know, we're second generation and all that good stuff. We need representation, right? And so as we keep going, God willing, we're able to really establish a television network and a media entity that can really stand to say, we tell our stories, we cover stories for us and by, not necessarily by us, because we're very diverse at Tan TV, but for us, right? Right. <laughs> and we're in a space where we're hoping to create more visibility for voices, immigrant voices, minority voices, and of the likes. So, yeah. yeah. I respect that. I respect that. And I know you've touched on this a little bit, but just for some context, like, do we want to, like, touch on what exactly is Tan TV Studios and who is it for? Like, who's the type of person you guys are creating content? I'm going to start from the big, the big picture now. So imagine a streaming platform where 
you're able to see beautiful multicultural faces or Black multicultural faces and watch content from Black multicultural individuals, like a chef from Haiti or, you know, watch content from Haiti that lives in the U.S., for instance, you know, you're able to experience diversity of content, right, on one platform. So basically what we're ultimately building is a TV network where it's more of a linear channel, you know, OTT, and also a streaming platform where you can sort of watch different things on demand. That's essentially what we're building. But right now, what we are, we are an editorial platform catering to the African and Black multicultural diaspora. So we call ourselves, you know, smart journalism, (laughs) smart journalism for the diaspora, basically. You know, and we're starting with the American, the U.S. diaspora. So when you think of Ghanaian-American, Cameroonian-American, Nigerian-American, even African-Americans, you know, or Afro-Latina, we're really creating that space where we can cover our own stories using the editorial platform and other extensions, you know, multimedia-wise. So what makes us unique and different, I would say, is the journalism aspect. So a lot of people would be like, why do you need a platform? I don't like to read. Or, you know, TikTok is everything or video is everything. And my answer to them is, you know, why does the New York Times exist, right? Why do people still subscribe to the New York Times? Important stories, fact-checking. Yeah, you know, essentially what we're trying to be is almost even better than the New York Times before the African diaspora. You know, that's where we are. And in terms of the streaming platform, which is the bigger picture, is to really be like an HBO or even better us where we have creators and we can put our content a lot of minority creators and young creators that are based in diaspora even across to the continent who you know are not getting the opportunities and all that good stuff and so we're really curating a premium space aggregating this sort of content in one space really yeah i respect it i respect it and you know when you said you guys are rooted in journalism like I agree wholeheartedly. Like if you guys go to their website, like like it's so professionally done. Like I can see your Forbes experience kind of like on that website, just kind of the way like the layout and, you know, the types of stories you do. Like, oh, yeah, this person, this Thank founder you. has, you know, media training of some sort. Like it's very professionally done. So kudos for that. It's something that we pay a lot of attention to, not to be, it could be slow news, right? But not to be clickbaity not to be gossip. There's space for that. There's space where you have like gossip stories and all that stuff, but we try to really own in on the journalism aspects because it's necessary. It's necessary. How has the journey been for you, like as a business now, not just as a news platform? Because, you know, when investors are looking at the media space and you're looking at everyone is kind of like their own media (laughs) organization Mm -hmm. now with, you know, you have a camera, you have a phone, you're pretty much a media organization how has that been like for you? Because I know like people can actually subscribe on your website, like there are monthly subscription options. As far as like monetization and speaking to investors, kind of like running it as a business. It's not just like a, mm-hmm. a passion of yours. This is now a business. How has that journey been for you being an immigrant businesswoman? So I've learned to insert myself into the founder space and the startup space. And by doing that, it's really giving a lot of runway and giving us access to things that probably I I wouldn't have learned about if I didn't keep pushing, right? And what do I mean? So for instance, last year, we separated into the Halcyon 
Incubator, which is a, an accelerator program in DC. They have a beautiful mansion in Georgetown. And so being accepted into that program, you know, it's you apply, you, you get accepted, hopefully, but thankfully we did. And it was such a great opportunity to be a Haitian fellow because that gave us the cushion to connect with advisors from Capital One and, you know, other like institutions or even have advisors who were entrepreneurs themselves and could show us the ropes and teach us a thing or two. So inserting ourselves into this the startup world by you know applying to the accelerator programs as being that coaching and investors do appreciate that effort. They want to know that before you're coming to them for money, you are actually getting grants, you're actually getting into programs. So thankfully we have, we've gotten a few grants that's been keeping us afloat. We've gotten, you know, stipends from programs like Halcyon and uh, we keep applying to grants. We keep applying to fellowships. We keep applying to a lot of things in the startup world just to get that cushion. Nice. And the more we do this, the more I find out that we are getting closer and closer to investors. So we're talking to investors and we have a few investors even as advisors right now. So ultimately that's one part, one part of building a business is the grants will support you. The programs, they would write your references. They would vouch for you. You put in the work, you show up all of those good stuff. And then the second part is the traction on the platform. So the traction on the platform is something that we're very, very, it's a big goal of ours. You know, I've spoken to potential investors where they're like, if you tell us your platform has like 6 million users, boom, we'll be able to give you this money. But unfortunately, it doesn't have those numbers right now. Oh, but it's a niche platform. Like there are riches and niches, right? Like if you're speaking directly to the African diaspora, like there are a lot of products that need that market. Exactly. So what it is, is right now, we're content platform, but we're also an advertising platform, right? Like media gets money from advertising or advertisements and partnerships and sponsorships. So in terms of building the business, we are basically finding meaningful ways or strategic ways to align the business that would benefit advertisers. And, you know, even with the growing numbers that we have to say, this is where we are now. So you're not going to pay as much money as, of course, you probably pay to be on a DET or a CNN or on TV or Fox or, or New York Times, right? Because those charge way, way more. But we're standing on a level where we can start bringing advertisers on board at a very more manageable or affordable rate. And then also working with small businesses and local businesses. So local businesses and even other startups too, they have the same target audience like we do. We've been in talks with them and they've also been reaching out like, hey, we want to find a way to partner. We want to find a way that we can also reach the diaspora audience and all that good stuff. So one way or the other, it's like almost, how do I put it? It's like being in a pond and going in the circle first before trying to go upward because our peers are also doing something similar. You know, other startup founders, small businesses, local businesses, they are more accessible. And those numbers count. So we're not writing them off. So small mm. restaurant here or mom and pop shop here or this beauty founder here. We're gathering these stories. They're advertising with us. We're doing ads as a service for them. We're writing press releases. You know, we're doing a lot of other things that will keep adding to those numbers. And then the hope is that as we keep going and we get more established, we now have a home where we can now bring in some of the bigger sponsors or bigger advertisers like Walmart or 
Coca-Cola or Bumble or whatever, you know, to advertise on the platform. So no, I respect it. You know, we're talking about the immigrant grit, you know, a few minutes mm. ago. And, and that's pretty much what you're showcasing at this time. Plus, you live in the perfect city, like living in D.C., you know, coming up to the 2024 elections. Like there are all these things are going on. We have a lot of Africans now winning political offices. I think the governor of Maryland is like of Jamaican descent. Yes. We have a few senators who are Nigerian. Like you can definitely key into that. One media model I love of recent is Barstool. I don't know if you know about them. It's kind of like they've just mm. carved a niche for themselves in this whole bro sports culture like mm. type of thing. I think Barstool is just like a, a licensing business in a way. Like all mm. they do is the media side, they have advertisers and all that, but they just like license their name on different things, like license their name on like sports betting, on like bars, on like merchandise and everything. And that's how, because it's such a strong culture that they built with their following like they just funnel all those things like kind of like similar to what okay africa or blavity or some of all these other guys are doing mm. i definitely see you getting there sometime in the future particularly like with your plans for streaming and all that let me ask you have you been home back home since you came here uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god can't believe you're asking <laughs> all right mommy you're listening to this right all right <laughs> My parents have been here. My parents have been here. Oh, okay. So, right. And then my siblings have also been, you know, they come and go. So I've been able to stay in touch that way. <laughs> okay. Okay. But yeah. you haven't been back. But I asked that to ask, like, what's kind of like your advice, right? Like you came here and went through some of the trials that, you know, a lot of immigrants go through when they come to a new country. Needless to say, you're kind of like forging ahead beyond all the struggle. You're still like trying to forge a path for yourself. So what's one advice for a 15-year-old girl who just bought her ticket in 2023 and is looking at coming to the U.S.? What would you tell that young lady right now? Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy your childhood. Ah, (laughs) Adulthood is a scam. Okay, let's say 21. Let's say 21-year-old. <laughs> not 15. I would not say, uh-uh, not 15 for sure. All right. I don't even know, like 15. It's interesting. It's wild. The thing for me, I always look back and my aunties, they always brag about me, the fact that I, you know, was young and everything. But because I was anchored in faith, that was one thing that I didn't, I wasn't moved by things around me, you know, the drugs and everything. It's never moved or tattoos. Not like it's bad, you know, but it just wasn't something that I paid attention to because I had such a strong Christian foundation. But even beyond that, I built my own relationship with Christ. So I've always had a, a close relationship with Christ. And so sometimes even when I deviate and all that, I'm able to come back because that's home. And anything I am today is because of faith. Like, for me, I always say you always need something to believe in. For me, what I've chosen to believe in or what I've tested to be true is my foundation and belief in Christ, you know? And so that has been the source of my confidence. A lot of the risk I've taken as an entrepreneur has just been faith. Like you have faith, you're not seeing the whole thing. You're just in the next right thing to do. So I I will say that for that. In terms of the advice, Honestly, what would I say to a 15-year-old or 21-year-old who wants to immigrate to the U.S.? Is that the question? Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say if you have the opportunity, then yes, take it. Take it. And it's sad. Uh, one thing that makes me sad 
is the state of things back home in Nigeria and across other African nations. You know, recently the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit, right, that brought, what, 49 heads of states to the United States in December. And I found a bit of that sad because I'm like, yo, you guys, you leaders, you come here, you see a sane society, you enjoy the security, you enjoy the first-class treatment you get, you enjoy the good roads that your cars are passing through to get to the conference centers, you feel safe. But how is it that when you go back home, it's insanity? Why? So it's a bit sad to me that you could have African leaders come here and they see all that and they are not moved, right? Right. I wish the goal wasn't to come to America. I wish the goal wasn't to travel to the UK or wherever. I wish the goal was that you would stay home and you would still thrive. And coming here was just a choice. Like if you wanted to, not because you have to. One of the things that made me push to come to America from Nigeria was because I saw a lot of my cousins who would finish high school, secondary school, and they were at home for five years. They wrote the jump many times, didn't get accepted, stayed home. They entered universities and then there was strikes. And I would wonder like, wait, to graduate from universities taking seven years, why? You know, so those are the questions I started asking myself from a very young age. Looking back now, being in media isn't an accident because, you know, I was always interested in politics in Nigeria when I was young. Like at the age of 12, 13, I would write like op-eds and, you know, send it to editors at this day and The Guardian, right? I don't, it never really got published, but I would keep writing. I remember I have like journals of things I would write about Obasanja at that time being the president. As a 13-year-old. Yeah. Interesting. So I've always been interested in those things because I was highly bothered. And so at some point, I just made up my mind, like, I didn't want to go to university in Nigeria. That was one thing I did not want. Because I didn't want to work so hard in secondary school and then spend five years waiting for admissions at home. I just did not want that. So even before, like, I was always a year ahead of my normal steps, right? So, like, in primary school... I entered secondary school at the age of eight. Normally you enter at maybe 11, 12. So I was in GS1 at the age of eight because I didn't finish primary five. I went from primary four to GS1 <laughs> because I told my mom I could do it. And then by the time I was done from secondary school at 15, I didn't even spend two months in Nigeria when I was done. You know how you finish secondary school. Some people would, you know, then you start applying. So right from SS2, I was applying to colleges in America, doing the SAT, doing TOEFL, doing all of that stuff so that by the time I'm done, God willing, in my mind, I'm not stuck in Nigeria. And everything played out. It was a lot of hard work. No one really showed me the ropes. I just kind of was researching and just determined. So advice really is that as a young person, anywhere you are, the world is global enough that your work will be seen. So first of all, don't feel that pressure that it has to be America. You know, there's an artist I saw online the other day, put out a post, an AI generated post of goddesses and all that from ancient African goddesses and all that, you know, and I want to interview him. I'm here. He's in Nigeria. We reached out to him to interview him. Right. 
Success can find you anywhere these days. Whatever it is you're doing, there's opportunity, great opportunity. You just have to be focused, really. So that's one thing I would say is sometimes you might not have the opportunity to come to America or go to the UK or anywhere else. But if you stay focused, even in that Nigeria, that people are writing off, people are still being successful the right way. So, yeah. You know, while the Nigerians who are listening to this right now are thinking, right, oh, after you've gone, now you want to stay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, peel back the surface, listen to what she's saying, right? Don't just take it as surface level. Oh, man. But, man, thank you so much for coming on, Natalie Dayo. Like, you're, you're truly an inspiration, kind of like your path. Like, I've been observing what you've been doing for, like, a year or two, you know, kind of like watching from the sidelines. Wow, wow always wanted you know you to come and like grace us with your presence on our platform i'm very glad we got to do it thank today uh, this month being black history month such an honor thank you <laughs> and <laughs> we wish you the best with all your future endeavors with tan tv how do people connect with you or you know access tan tv if they want to check out your stuff please go to tantvstudios.com tan tv studios t-a-n-t-v studios with the s Dot com And then you go on the upper right bar, it says become a member and you have the options to even do a free membership if you want to. So just become a member of the community, you know? Yeah. And how do people reach out to you if uh, Air Force One wants to invite you back <laughs> and say, this time, no more credit cards. You want to give out like emails, social security numbers, home address. You can always email me at engage at tantvstudios.com. We receive all the emails. I think that's the best way by email. Just engage at tantvstudios.com. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And then my Instagram is my name and my last name, Adedayo Fashionu on Instagram. So you can always send me a DM. You know, that's one other thing I like about you. You're like so authentic, like you use your full name, like you don't shorten no. uh, Adedayo, like you're not, you know, some people, and I don't blame people, but you know, some people tend to, when they move to US, you know, names changes to like John <laughs> or something that's easily pronounceable. Like I do that sometimes, like when I go to Starbucks, I just say my name is John, man, just <laughs> John Doe. <laughs> I don't want to use start like thinking about how to call this name when my coffee is ready and whatnot. <laughs> But, you know, you being authentic to your name, being authentic to your story and helping others push that African narrative through their stories mm. is very impressive. So thank you again for coming thank on the you. Culture Class Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, for our listeners, if you want to reach out to us, it's cultureclasspodcast.com. Connect with Ade Dayo. She's doing great things. Uh, when she eventually raises that money from investors and she's up there with Oprah, we'll, we'll be able to brag and say, yeah, we had her on the podcast a couple of years ago. So, amen. amen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good evening. Until next episode, everyone be well. <laughs>